So everybody could find your seats. We will begin. Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here. We're back in the Gospels as we continue our introduction to the New Testament today. Today's lesson is entitled The Life of Jesus. Before we get to that, just a little review. Last week, we looked more closely at the specific purposes and emphases of each gospel, the four gospels. We saw that Matthew, Matthew shows that Jesus is king, but not just that Jesus is king. He's the king who will bring the kingdom. Mark shows that Jesus is the servant who must be followed. His people must become like him. We saw in Luke that Jesus is the son of man who came to save all men, not just the Jews, not just the religious, but all men. And then we saw in John that Jesus is the God who must be believed. He must be truly believed. I find it interesting, and maybe you notice this too, I find it interesting how well the Gospels complement each other. You have emphasis on two sides of an issue. For example, we have both Jesus as king and servant, both God and man. And that's mentioned in all the Gospels, but it's emphasized in different Gospels. Similarly, and this goes back to some of the audiences that uh, the background on audiences that I shared with you, we have emphases on both Jew and Gentile, written to both Jew and Gentile, and also believer and unbeliever. We see a symmetry there. And there's one new set of complementarity based on what I shared with you last week. We have in Matthew an emphasis on the specialness of Israel with the kingdom of Israel emphasized. But Luke emphasizes the inclusion of the Gentiles. So you see the two sides of that issue. Also, in John, we have a stress on belief, while Mark stresses action. You've got to follow and become like your Savior, like the Messiah. Now, again, each gospel includes those four different aspects of the gospel and of the life of Jesus. But there are particular stresses in each gospel that complement each other when viewed as a whole. Now, we've already come at the gospels from two introductory angles. We've examined their similarities and differences, and we've identified the unique audiences and purposes of the Gospels. But we're going to take one more introductory angle today, and that is we're going to use a harmony of the Gospels to establish a general chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus. How well do you know the life of Christ? You may know he was born, he died, and he rose again, but what about all the in-between? What was the sequence? What happened when in Christ's life? I mentioned to you before that though there are differences in the Gospels, they all follow a general chronology for Jesus' life. And when we compare the Gospels and how they're different and what information they include, we can come up with a more precise order of events. By establishing a more specific chronolo chronology of Jesus' life, we can better understand and appreciate the different events of Jesus' life whenever we examine them in closer detail. So that's our goal for today. We want to establish this outline of the life of Christ. Here's the outline that we're going to be creating. It's consisting of nine points. We're going to highlight these different points and populate them with some details. But we can 
at the highest level, divide Jesus' life into three segments, his preparation for ministry, his actual ministry, and then the culmination of his ministry. But within that, within those three larger sections, we can also highlight nine specific events or segments. His birth, his growing up, his baptism and temptation, his uh, the different years of his ministry, his three-year ministry, and then the culmination of that ministry in the Passion Week, his resurrection and ascension. So we're going to look at each of those pieces. Like last week, we won't really be analyzing any texts in depth today, but we will note certain verses that play important roles in the chronology of Jesus' life or an illustration of that chronology. This chronology that I'm looking to establish with you today is based chiefly on the harmony that is presented by Dr. Keith Essex in his New Testament studies class at the Master's Seminary. Let's pray before we go on. <clears throat> God, we thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus in the flesh so that he lived on the earth and he accomplished the plan of salvation that you ordained uh, in, from eternity. Help me to be able to explain this well and help uh, those who are listening to be able to understand so that we can have a firmer grasp on what actually happened in the life of your son. So Jesus, we can appreciate we can appreciate your life and ministry on our behalf. I pray that you bless this time. Amen. All right, let's begin our outline by focusing on the three events that constitute Jesus' preparation for ministry. And we start with Jesus' birth. This event naturally begins the life of Jesus. That's when his life actually begins. And the Gospels record important information <clears throat> regarding the time before Jesus' birth, such as the genealogical information of Matthew 1 or Luke 3, and the explanation of the word, that is another way to describe Jesus, the eternal word's existence with God, as explained in John 1. But Luke chapters 1 to 2 and Matthew 1 speak of the time immediately before and including the actual birth of Jesus via Mary. When in history was Jesus' birth? I have some dates listed on there, but to answer that question and to explain the answer to that question, we need to identify some historical details as given in the Gospels. So open your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 1. Turn to Luke. You may remember Luke gives us lots of historical information as his purpose was to make Theophilus confident in the exact truth regarding the events of Jesus' life. And the teaching of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we get our first, one of our first important details of the historical situation of the year before Jesus' birth. So right near Jesus' birth, Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, the division of Abijah. And, and then it goes on a little bit there. But it's the first part of that verse that's important. There's an historical detail there. Herod, the king, reigns over Judea. Now we can combine this with some more details that we get in Luke chapter 2. So turn over to chapter 2 for a second. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We hear this. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is about the year in which Jesus was born. 
Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. Now, note the specific details we see in this verse. Caesar Augustus is the one rating. Quirinus is governing Syria. Augustus has just issued a census, and this census is the first one taken during Quirinus' governorship. Now, those are very specific details. And when we combine that with the detail we're given in chapter 1, or if we connect that with what's given in chapter 1, and if we can fill out historically when those other events took place, when all those criteria were fulfilled, we can know the exact date of Christ's birth. We can know which year it happened, if we can identify when those other things took place. We have discovered much of this information. We do know when Caesar Augustus reigned or, or when he gave different censuses from archaeological and historical study. However, the information that we have and understanding of that information is incomplete. We have a number of pieces of the puzzle, but we don't have all the pieces because of the pieces we have, we cannot fit them totally, precisely, perfectly together. There's a little bit of a little bit of uncertainty as to how what we see in the Bible can fit with what we know now, or how, how it fits perfectly. So for that reason, we cannot be exactly precise of when Jesus was born. And there are a couple different dates that are usually proposed. They are the, the major positions for understanding the year of Jesus' birth. They would be 6 BC, 5 or 4 BC, and then 2 or 3 BC. So those are major positions, 6 BC, 5 or 4 BC, or 3 BC, 2 or 3 BC. Probably one of those dates. Now, you might be asking, wait a second, those are all BC dates. Doesn't BC mean before Christ? How could Jesus be born before, before Christ? Well, that is the meaning of BC, but our historical knowledge has gotten better since the BC and AD years were first calculated and popularized in the Middle Ages. We're now pretty sure that 1 AD was not the date of Christ's birth. It actually was a couple years before in the BC, what we call the BC era. By the way, what does AD mean in our dating system? Anno Domini, which translates to the year of our Lord. Yeah, it's Latin. So it's not after death. It's Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Note that, and this is just an aside, there is no 0 BC or 0 AD in our system, in our dating system. We go straight from 1 BC to 1 AD. Now, you may ask yourself, why are we so insane as to do that? Well, it actually is logical. Zero years before Christ, if we did have a zero BC, zero years before Christ would equal Christ's arrival, which would actually be 1 AD. That's the first year of our Lord. So logically, there can't be a year zero. You just go from one year before Christ to the year where actually Christ is here, and that's 1 AD, or at least that was the original logic. So for right now, we're going to take, we're just going to put a range for Christ's birth, 6 to 4 BC. The 2 or 3 BC date has a little bit more problems than the 6 or 4 BC date. Each one has some issues, which we'll discuss in the later lesson, but probably 6 to 4 BC is our best bet for when Christ was born. So this is the first event in our timeline, in our uh, chronology for the life of Jesus. 
Jesus is born. And we can put the date of 6 to 4 BC. Now, after the birth narrative, Matthew gives us some additional information about Jesus as he starts to grow up. There's a visit from the Magi, and there's a flight to Egypt when Jesus is just an infant, when he, or as, as he's growing up one or two years old. Eventually, though, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary return to Israel, and they live in Nazareth in Galilee, where Jesus grows up. And next time we see Jesus, he's almost a man, or at least a man in the eyes of the Jews. He's almost 13. Look now to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 43. So just a little bit further down in this chapter, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 43. This is the next time we hear about something in Jesus' life as he's growing up. So verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became 12... They went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. And you remember what happens after this. There's a prolonged search for Jesus. It ends with finding Jesus in the temple. And then Jesus' profound statement in verse 49 of chapter 2. So verse 49, Jesus says in response to his parents, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house, or what could be translated, in the things of my father? So before his bar mitzvah, Jesus is already showing his awareness and conformity to the, or to the salvation plan of the father. The only other statement we get on Jesus' childhood is at the end of this chapter, verses 51 to 52. So Luke chapter 2, verses 51 to 52, it says, and he went down and he went down with them, that is his parents, and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's basically all we get from the Bible about Jesus' years of growing up. We may want to know more of what it was like when Jesus was a child or when Jesus started his carpentry work, but God's Spirit did not consider that a knowledge important for us to have. Apocryphal writings notwithstanding, there is a, there's a false work out there that purports to give more of Jesus' childhood. So this is our second point in our timeline of Jesus' life, the life of Jesus. Jesus grows up. And that encompasses a, a couple decades. So we have Christ's birth, 46 BC, then Jesus grows up. Many years go by um, uh, constituting this period, and the next time we hear about Jesus, it's during the wilderness ministry of John the Baptist. Now, as we transition to John and John's baptizing and teaching in the wilderness, Luke, again, in his gospel, is very helpful in giving us some specific historical markers. Now look at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Luke 3, verses 1 to 2. And now we hear this. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Wow, talk about specificity. Look at all those, those specific historical details. Luke knows how to confirm an account. We've got six details here that help us date the wilderness ministry of John. 
So when we connect those with our research from from outside the Bible, we can get closer to assigning a date to to this moment. Soon after John's wilderness ministry begins, Jesus himself appears and is baptized. They're not very much separated in the narrative. If you just look down at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, we see Jesus appear again. Luke, 20, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So John appears, and Jesus appears, and is baptized. But he doesn't begin his ministry right away. This is still part of his preparation, because after his baptism, where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness himself to be tempted. And now Luke records this event in chapter 4 of his gospel. How long does Jesus' period in the wilderness and his period of temptation last? 40 days. That's right. We see that in Luke chapter 4 in the beginning verses. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And it's after Jesus comes back from the wilderness that he begins his ministry. Now, now how old is Jesus when he returns? Luke actually gives us this information before he describes Jesus' return from the wilderness back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 23a, the first part of verse 23. Luke tells us, when he, as Jesus, began his ministry, Jesus was Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Another important detail there, but a little more, um, a little more, a little less specific. Doesn't mean that Jesus was 30 years exactly. In chapter 2, Luke told us that Jesus was 12 years old when he was found in the temple. Not about 12, but he was 12. But here, Luke says Jesus was about 30, which conceivably could include or could mean an age between 26 and 34, depending on how strictly Luke was rounding. But about 30 years of age, and of course that is a significant age, as that connects with um, the Old Testament, especially the age for serving as a priest. I think it's also the age that some of the prophets began their ministry. But anyways, he was about 30 years of age. And if we use that detail and connect it with some of the other historical details in chapter 3, we can assert a date for Jesus beginning his ministry around AD 25 to AD 26. Now, some people would go a little bit further, uh, all the way to maybe AD 29 or AD 30. That kind of depends on uh, a lot of these chronological, or a lot of the specific dates depend on when you put the birth and when you put the crucifixion. But for now, we're going to say AD 25 to AD 26 is when Jesus begins his ministry. And he would be about 30 years old if he was born in 6 or 4 BC. So we have our third point on Jesus' timeline. Jesus is baptized and tempted. And this happens in the same year that our fourth point begins on the timeline and that Jesus actually begins his three-year ministry. So let's now move over to the three-year ministry of Jesus. There, there are some differing, there are differing views on just how long Jesus' ministry was. Not everyone would say it was three years. Some would say two, or some would, some would, uh, I think someone would even say four. But the majority view is three. Dr. Essex, Dr. Essex specifically notes how if you examine the gospels, there are four distinct Passovers that Jesus is recorded as participating in. 
and that suggests three years, just overlapping a little bit more than three years. So three and a half years, maybe. So Jesus has his formal ministry for three years, three and a half years, but that also can be divided into three parts, roughly corresponding to about a year each in which a particular quality characterizes Jesus's ministry. And we'll examine each one of those parts. Each one will be a point on our timeline. So point number four is the year of obscurity. The first part of Jesus' three-year ministry is characterized as a year, or can be characterized as a year of obscurity. And this beginning point of Jesus' ministry is only beginning his ministry and is not yet the receiver of wide acclaim or opposition. This part of Jesus' ministry, and I've I've included a number of details that you can see on this slide and in the preceding slides that kind of fill out some of the things that I'm saying more specifically. Just to summarize a little bit, this first year, this first part of Jesus' ministry includes things like Jesus turning the water into wine at Cana in Galilee, Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem at the Passover, and his cleansing the temple for the first time. Christ teaches Nicodemus, Christ ministers to the Samaritan woman, Jesus heals an official son, he calls Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, John, and Andrew as full-time disciples, so they actually were with him, or yeah, they, he, he calls them first, and then um, he more formally calls the disciples again later, uh, a larger group of disciples, and Jesus does miracles at Capernaum. So just to give you a little illustration, a little flavor of this. Let's look at a few verses that correspond to this year of Jesus' ministry. Look at John chapter 3. John 3 verses 22 to 24. So John 3 verses 22 to 24. Here Jesus begins his first Judean ministry, his first time in Judea. This is what it says, John 3 verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing, so that's John the Baptist, in Anon near Salim, because there is much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So this is an early part of Jesus' ministry. Look over back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, verses 12 and 13. Matthew 4, we read, Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, they came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So in this first year, we have John partly ministering at the same time as Jesus, but then John being put into prison. Look down at verse 17 of Matthew 4. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is ministering, but he hasn't, he hasn't yet become widely known or super popular. Now look over just to Mark chapter 1 for a moment. Mark 1, verse 38 to 39. Mark 1, verse 38, two verses here. And he said to them, or, or yeah, he said to them, let us go 
somewhere else to the towns nearby. Oh, I should give some context. This is right after Jesus had a great day of doing miracles and casting out demons in Capernaum. He prays during the night, and then the next day he says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. So this is our fourth piece of our Life of Jesus timeline, the year of obscurity. But Jesus is not going to remain, Jesus does not remain obscure for long. You can't demonstrate that kind of authoritative power, that authoritative teaching, and stay obscure. So we come to the second part of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, three-year ministry, and that is the year of public favor. During this year, Jesus becomes well-known and well-loved by the people, by the people of Israel and, and Galilee in general, who increasingly see him as their political, medical, and economic savior. The crowds start following Jesus everywhere. And though Jesus is mostly well-liked during this year, opposition builds against Jesus during this year, starting out with questions and ending with more sinister accusations of Jesus, against Jesus, even that he is demon-possessed and he works with the power of demons. In the face of such opposition, towards the end of this year, Jesus transitions to teaching in parables. Now let's look at a few verses to illustrate this year. Look at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Mark 3, we read, Mark 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing, and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So you can understand this obvious public favor, this, this uh, great amount of people following Jesus. And we see this in some other verses, too. Turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9, verses 2 to 8. Here we see some beginning opposition to Jesus, but also the favor of the crowds that he enjoyed. Matthew 9, verses 2 to 8. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This opposition would increase, though. Look back, or look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 24. Matthew 12, verse 22. This is more towards the end of this year of public favor. Verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? 
But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's not just the leaders who turn against Jesus. Even the crowds towards the end of this year become fed up with Jesus. Look over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69. John 6. Now, this is right after Jesus has multiplied food for 5,000 plus people, multiplied bread. But Jesus connected that event with teaching about himself. He proclaimed, I am the bread of life. Don't work for their bread that perishes. You need to take me in. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. In other words, you need to believe in me wholeheartedly if you want to be saved. Verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus starts out this year becoming more and more popular. He becomes immensely popular. But by the end, many followers have become disillusioned with him. And the Jewish leaders have become bold in their opposition to Jesus. So this is the fifth point of our timeline for Jesus, a year of public favor. And this transitions us into what is not surprising, the last part of Jesus' ministry, the last year or so of Jesus' ministry, the year of opposition. During this part of Christ's ministry, Jesus sees more and more belligerence from the Pharisees and scribes. But he uses the time to expose the Pharisees publicly, rebuke them, and to teach his core disciples who confess that Jesus is really the Messiah. Jesus ministers one last time in Judea and Perea and even does one of his most amazing miracles, raises Lazarus from the dead. At the finish of this year, Jesus proceeds on his final journey to Jerusalem. Let's look at a few more verses. Look over to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verses 5 to 8. So here we see a confrontation with Jesus and the religious leaders. Mark 7, verse 5 and following. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far, far away from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So you can see Jesus exposing the Pharisees and religious leaders here. Didn't sit well with them. Look back over to John chapter 7. John 7 verse 1. Just one verse to read here. I think it's quite illustrative. John 7, verse 1. This is actually uh, right after where we read before. 
or soon after what we read before, when the crowds mostly dispersed from Jesus, don't follow Jesus. It says, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, but he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I remember when John uses the term Jews, he usually means the religious leaders of the Jews, scribes and Pharisees. They not only oppose Jesus, but now they're trying to kill Jesus. More and more, they're trying to kill Jesus. But Jesus is concerned with not only exposing the hard-heartedness of Israel, but also of training his disciples. Look over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and following is a lot of teaching specifically for the disciples. Now that it becomes clear that Jesus is not going to accept them, or the Israel is not going to accept their Messiah. <clears throat> Look at Matthew 18 verses 1 to 6. Matthew 18, verse 1 to 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples here, and he says, or actually I'll start with the narrative. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. One more verse to look at here. Look at Luke 18. One, one more set of verses. This is also characteristic of the last year of Jesus's ministry. He warns his disciples repeatedly of what's about to happen in Jerusalem. And we see one of these in Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through their prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. So this is the sixth point on our life of Jesus, the year of opposition. So we've had his birth, we had his growing up, we had his baptism and temptation. And then we had the three years of his ministry, the three phases of his ministry, the year of obscurity, the year of public favor, now the year of opposition. As we move to our seventh item, we transition to the ministry culmination of Jesus, or the, the culmination of Jesus' ministry. The seventh item on our, on our list is Jesus' Passion Week, which culminates with Jesus' crucifixion. This week includes Jesus' final arrival in Jerusalem, his betrayal, and then, as I said, his crucifixion. Now, there are some, again, some historical details given in the Gospels that play into dating this part of Jesus' ministry. Pontius Pilate continues to be governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch continues to rule over Galilee. We see them both featured in the trials that took place before Jesus' crucifixion. So combining this with uh, what we said earlier about Jesus beginning his ministry at a certain time and his ministry lasting a certain number of years, we can assert a date range of about 28 to 29 AD. Again, some people would go a little bit further um, in time, even 30 AD, or even as far as 33 AD. But for now, we're going to say 28 to 29 AD. Now, this part of Jesus's ministry is very much 
detailed in each of the Gospels. There's a strong focus on Jesus' Passion Week, the week of his crucifixion in the Gospels. And that's great because that means we can really um, specifically identify which events happen on which day. We can be pretty specific about that. The only issue with this, potential issue with this, is Wednesday. The Gospels extensively describe the actions of Jesus on all the days of the, the Passion Week except Wednesday. Why does it seem like nothing happens on Wednesday or very little happens on Wednesday? Well, one answer that has been proposed is that Jesus actually entered into Jerusalem not on Sunday, but on Monday. And therefore, there is one less day to account for in Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. The reason that very little seems to happen on Wednesday is because we actually started on Monday and not on Sunday. That's one explanation. John 12, 1 does say that Jesus, I'll read the verse, John 12, 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So it says six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. And Bethany is the town from which he comes to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. Bethany is really close to Jerusalem. So if we don't count Friday, six days before, and Friday would be the, the day, the official day of Passover, six days before is Saturday, which means that he would come into Jerusalem on Sunday. But if you do count Friday, then six days before is Sunday. He would arrive in Bethany on Sunday and enter Jerusalem on Monday. So there is that view. The majority view, though, and the traditional view is that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday. So accepting a Sunday arrival in Jerusalem, the Passion Week breaks down as I've detailed for you on the screen. So Sunday, Jesus has his triumphal entry and he inspects the temple. And this should be familiar to you, I think, because of the pastor's recent series in Mark, which is focused on the Passion Week. So Sunday, he has his entry and he inspects the temple. Monday, he curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple and he meets with certain Greeks um, who, are, who are wondering about him. Certain Greek-speaking uh, Jews, I think, or maybe it's Greeks. I have to go back and look. Tuesday, he teaches about the cursed fig tree. He engages in some hostile uh, debate in the temple with the religious leaders there. Of course, Jesus shows them up. Jesus teaches his disciples regarding persecution and the future and the Olivet Discourse. Oh, and yeah, that was, that was the last thing on that, that day. On Wednesday, the day that doesn't seem to get much description, Judas meets with the Jewish leaders and makes betrayal arrangements. So it seems to be a day of preparation. On Thursday, the disciples prepare the Passover, and the disciples and Jesus eat the Passover meal in the Last Supper, which gets transformed into the Lord's Supper. And then the disciples go with Jesus and the, the waning part of the day into the night to the Garden of Gethsemane. On Friday, Jesus endures the three trials by the Jews and the three trials by the Romans. Judas feels convicted. He returns the money, commits suicide. Jesus is crucified, and then Jesus is buried on Friday. Saturday, Jesus' body simply remains in the tomb, and his followers, his disciples, they rest according to the commandment of Moses regarding the Sabbath. So no one goes to the tomb on Saturday. So this is the seventh item on our chronology of life, the Passion Week of Jesus culminating in the crucifixion, probably in years 28 to 29 AD. The eighth item on our list, though, as you know, is the resurrection. On the first day of the next week, which is our Sunday, Jesus rose again. Look over to Luke chapter 21, or Luke 24, verses 1 to 7. 
Luke 24, verses 1 to 7. See this described explicitly. Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices, that's the women, which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Well, they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. As the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Now someone may object. Wait a second. Jesus was not in the tomb three days. He was only there about, if you count up the hours, about two days, maybe even one and a half days. Moreover, Jesus promised specifically in Matthew 12:40, Matthew 12:40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How was Jesus there three full days and three full nights if he went into the grave on Friday and rose on Sunday? In reply, some Christians have sought to retool the chronology of the Passion Week to give the, the three full days and three full nights. But such jury-rigging is not necessary. The simple answer here is that the Jews sometimes regarded part of a day as counting as a full day. If you did something for part of a day, it counted as if you did it for that day. Even the phrase three days and three nights need not refer to complete 24-hour cycles. That phrase can be fulfilled by simply doing something for part of a day, for three days. And that's exactly what happened. By going into the tomb on Friday, which was part of a day, remaining there on Saturday, and rising from it on Sunday, which was part of a day, Jesus faithfully fulfilled his promise to rise again three days later. Even, even using the phrase three days and three nights, it just indicates three partial days, at least three partial days. So Jesus was faithful to his promise. But, did, but Jesus didn't rise from the tomb and then disappear. He made himself known in a number of appearances to his disciples. And you can see many of those listed on the screen. The Apostle Paul actually summarizes many of, many of these appearances in 1 Corinthians. So actually, let's exit the Gospels for just a second. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. So end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul is teaching on the resurrection here, summarizing what is given in the Gospels. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, as Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Of course, his appearance to Paul is not recorded in the Gospels, that's recorded in the book of Acts. We do see many of these appearances specifically outlined in the Gospels. And how many days did Jesus remain on the earth after his resurrection? Forty days, forty days again. And we get this from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. 
Acts 1, 3, to these, that is the apostles, he also presents himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So in this eighth part of our timeline for Jesus, we talk about his resurrection, but we include in that his appearances to his disciples. Jesus rises from the dead and presents himself to the disciples and teaches them for 40 days. Finally, though, Jesus brought the disciples to the Mount of Olives and gave a last commission to preach the gospel, make new disciples, and to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Luke records this event in chapter 24. So turn back over to Luke. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. It's interesting that not every gospel records the ascension, but Luke does. And Matthew nearly does. He, he brings you right to the Mount of Olives, but doesn't have Jesus actually ascend. But Luke does. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. And he, as Jesus, led them, as the disciples, his followers, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So this is the last, the ninth and last item on our life of Christ, taking place in the same year as Jesus' crucifixion. It's only 40 days later or so. So uh, we have Jesus' ascension. So there's our nine different segments of the life of Christ. Did you follow all of that? Let's review the sequence. So again, we could broadly divide Jesus' life up into three main sections. His preparation for ministry, his three-year or three-and-a-half-year ministry, and then his ministry culmination. And we can break that down more specifically and assign a few dates. First, Jesus is born around 6 to 4 BC. He grows up, he's baptized, and he endures temptation in the wilderness but then he is prepared and begins his ministry. He, Jesus officially commences his signs and preaching ministry at about 30 years of age, probably around 80, 25 to 26. And he first experiences a year of relative obscurity. That is followed by a year of public favor and then a year of opposition. Jesus' ministry culminates with the Passion Week, or with, uh, Jesus' ministry culminates starting with the Passion Week and the crucifixion, probably 80, 28 to 29. But Jesus conquered death, rose again, and appeared to his disciples. After 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven, where he waits until he comes again. And there you have it, the life of Christ, the life of Christ in a broad outline. All right, what questions do you have about what you've heard today? Any questions or comments on what we just heard? Yeah, Rob. Mm hmm. Okay, that's a really good question, Rob. You're asking, just repeat your question a little bit. The gospel do 
seemed to present some parallels between Jesus and Israel. Israel was called um, God's son. That's actually something that God says in Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Israel. And yet the same thing is said about Jesus. Out of Egypt, Jesus is called after uh, Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. And we can see other parallels between what Jesus experiences and what Israel experienced. So is that parallel meant? Should we should we say that that was something that God intended? That does appear to be the case. Now, there's a, there's a lot of controversy surrounding Matthew's use of Hosea and, and a couple other places where Matthew uses the Old Testament seemingly out of context. Because back in Hosea, that doesn't seem to be a prophecy about Jesus. And yet it's treated that way in the New Testament. We could talk for a little bit about um, how, how to handle that. I think maybe we'll, we will do that in a, in a future lesson another time. Uh, but one way to understand what Matthew is doing, and I think the other guys, gospel writers to some extent, is he's creating a parallel between the king and his people. Whatever This is very consistent with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a, there's a concept of, um, not continuity, but um, representation and sharing between the king and his people. Whatever the people experience, the king experiences. Whatever the king experiences, the people experience. So it's natural for the king of Israel to experience the things that Israel has experienced. And Matthew seems to, one, one line of explanation, Matthew seems to present, and again, some of, the, some of the other gospel writers to some extent, seems to present Jesus as being just like Israel and therefore fitting as their king. Remember, that's one of the points of Matthew's gospel to show that Jesus is the king of Israel and his kingdom is still coming. So I do think, yes, it is right for us to see that parallel. A more specific explanation of how does Matthew use the Old Testament or how do a few other instances the writers use the Old Testament, we could talk about another time. Good question, though. What? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Steve. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, 
I appreciate that, Steve. Uh, I'll just briefly summarize a little bit of what you just said. Yeah, it is it is important for us to not try and uh, understand the the resurrection, or we don't want to understand the timing of the resurrection properly, because you're right, it is central to the gospel. And when you say it took place on a Wednesday or something like that, all, all, a lot of things don't seem to quite fit very well. And we do see examples in scripture of the explanation that I gave and that you repeated, Steve, which is that a partial day equal to full day. The Pharisees understood that. They said, we want it to be secure until the third day because we don't want people. We, They thought that the disciples of Jesus might deceive the people and remove Jesus's body by Sunday. Um, so, or on Sunday, by Sunday, so that they could claim that Jesus was resurrected as Jesus promised. So that is further evidence that and that was the understanding of the people at the time that going into the grave on Friday and rising on Sunday was three days later. And when we start to change that, we are uh, messing with a core aspect of the gospel. As you pointed out, going back to Corinthians, um, this is central to the gospel. Three days later, Jesus rose again. When were the three days? It was from Friday to Sunday. Trying to make it into Wednesday it just raises a whole lot of problems. Thank you for that. Any other questions or comments? Mm -hmm. uh, thanks, Caleb. So going back to the phrase three days and three nights, how could that be understood as a partial day when that kind of sounds like a full day? It sounds like full 24 hours or three days and three nights. I would need to get back to you on the specifics of that. My The answer that I want to give, but I just want to double check before I give that, is that we do see other instances where the phrase day and night is used re regarding days, that something is going to happen for three days and three nights or a certain number of days and a certain number of nights, but it's actually fulfilled by something that wasn't fully day and night. Uh, I have to go back and look at what, what the specific examples are. But the answer certainly is, even though the phrase three days and three nights is used, it still can be understood as part of a day. It doesn't, ha doesn't literally have to be the day and night. Um, I, I can think of maybe a parallel in our own language. This isn't exactly the same, but maybe just as an illustration. When we say, uh, oh, I worked day and night for three days. Well, we don't actually mean that I worked 24 hours straight. We just mean we worked for a really long time on three different days, just stressing that I was working a lot. And you weren't even working the whole day. You were just working for part of the day. So it's not quite the same as the, as the Jewish situation, but a little bit similar where you can use the, the, the term three days and three nights. And it, it still means only part of a day. And one other thing to note is that when uh, Jesus is quoting or when Jesus is making that, that promise, he's quoting the situation as it was described about Jonah. So that's one of the reasons why he uses the parallel. Uh, that seems to be one of the reasons why he uses the parallel language. I saw a hand, Steve. Okay. Hmm. 
Yeah, thanks, Steve. And I'll, I'll repeat those real quick. He mentioned Esther seems to be another example where we see similar phrasing about day and night, but it only refers to partial days. And uh, pointing out that Jesus is speaking idiomatically. Again, we're trying to understand it how the Jews would have understood it. And they didn't, they didn't have to understand it as three full days and three full nights. Um, just as they didn't have to understand that Jesus was in the heart of the earth. That just means that Jesus was, uh, was in a tomb or was in the ground or was in the grave. So, yeah, we're, we want to understand it as the original audience understood it. And that appears to be in three partial days. Oh, and your other point about we don't want to overemphasize this particular verse. If this verse says three days and three nights, but the other verses are saying three days, then that informs us, okay, the verse three days and three nights can have an understanding of a partial day. As Jesus says, the scripture can't be broken. All right, that's about the time that we have today. If you have more questions, then you can email me. I would love to hear those or hear more comments from you. Don't really have any specific applications for today's lesson since kind of had a direct and technical purpose for today's lesson, though I hope you do appreciate seeing a framework for how the events of Jesus's life take place that you can better appreciate and understand the individual, um, the individual events as they happen. Next week, we have a review day in most of the classes, but in the adult Sunday school class, we are going to talk about attacks against the New Testament. All right, so let's close in prayer. Our God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your resurrection. I thank you that we have this word revealed to us and that it's true. Lord, you have, by your spirit and by connecting to the deep reality in our hearts, you have shown that this word is true, but it's also been, it has so many confirmations, both in the integrity of the word and within itself, and also uh, confirming pieces of historical information, archaeological information. We thank you for this word. We thank you that you did come, that you took on, that Jesus, you took on flesh, you lived your life, that you ministered, you endured the opposition and the, the scorn that you did not deserve. You took on the, the very wrath of God against you as against sin, and you died in our place. But you rose, you, were, you conquered, you were victorious. Thank you, Lord Jesus. God, we pray that we would live lives worthy of the gospel, that we would follow your pattern, and God, that we would look forward to your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everybody. I'll see you next week.